Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Rebecca Caden of Union Square Ventures, who I consider to be one of the best venture firms in the world, as they've backed companies such as Stripe, Twitter, Etsy, Lending Club, and Coinbase. What I also find compelling about the firm is that it's also very thesis and mission-driven, including investing in the future by addressing key issues like the climate crisis. Before starting at USV nearly five years ago, Rebecca was a GP at Maveron and before that worked in journalism. This was a really fun conversation as Rebecca shared her thoughts on firm building, culture, and how they think about thesis construction. So let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Rebecca, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I've been excited about this uh, discussion for a while, and I love your background. So you came from the journalism side in school, had a job as an editor, and then ultimately went into VC with Maveron. Tell us how that happened, and what was that self-realization that made you want to go from the journalism side to becoming a full-time investor? Well, I think self-realization would be a dramatic overstatement (laughs) of what it was. I think I'm a believer that um, many of the most interesting paths are opportunistic and by chance and kind of a a coming together of events versus planned. I think we all can be tempted to plan things neatly and sometimes letting spontaneity occur leads to good outcomes. And and that's what my story and venture really is. I had been a journalist coming out of college and I loved it. I was fascinated then, I still am, um, on how content is produced and the role of stories, true and not true, in our lives and how it kind of shapes our narrative. And I had become interested in content's transition to the web um, and how traditional media and new media was going to exist in this kind of changing time. I went to business school, kind of interested in that and kind of because I didn't know what came next in a career after that interest, really had not much of an idea of what I was going to do. And it was a um, mentor of mine at business school, a guy named Bill Campbell, who passed away, you know, several years ago, but um, was known as the coach in Silicon Valley and spent most of his time with very important people and a little bit of his time at Stanford, kind of helping people like me think about their careers and getting to know um, people in the school. And, And he was the one that said, you know, I think you should think about venture. It really wasn't on my radar before that. But I think like many great mentors, part of mentorship is being able to see things in people that, you know, they may not realize about themselves. And I'm hugely grateful to him for that. So he was an advisor to Maveron and he introduced me to the team there and kind of, I think, encouraged them to give me a shot despite my glaring lack of any experience in the space. Um, And so I joined and, you know, what I found was that There are many, many differences, obviously, of journalism or editorial and venture, but there's a kind of core similarity of developing trust with people, getting to build those relationships and putting together these stories that are often early and messy, but, you know, fewer data points than you might want and more than you probably need to tell a narrative. And I found that I could utilize more of the skills from that part of the career that I might have first guessed. What a lot of people don't actually know is there's a number of venture capitalists that had journalism degrees and actually worked in journalism to some capacity before they started as full-time investors. And you talk about skill sets and 
oftentimes there are skill sets that are very transferable from one vocation to another. In those early years, what were those exact transferable skill sets that helped really build your view on investing in companies in particular? I don't know if it's a skill set, but and and this may be true for for very many careers, but capacity to learn, deep curiosity, a lot of hustle, and the ability to develop a pattern of how you go from not knowing anything about something to developing perspective, which is, I think, a different thing than expertise, but perspective relatively quickly, right? I think um, journalism requires that. My bet is many careers require that to some degree or another. And I think venture, particularly at the beginning of your career, really values that. I think, obviously, one of the things I find interesting about venture is different elements of it kind of train different skills over time. But particularly at the beginning, I think that made up a lot of what I needed and what I needed to learn. And, you know, still at USV, we talk a lot about, you know, expertise is less important to us than the capacity and process for learning. How do you go from not knowing anything about something to having enough knowledge to create a perspective relatively quickly? And what is the process involved there? And that I think is an important kind of skill to hone in venture. Since you brought up USV, which has, of course, done fantastic, well over a decade investing in some of the best companies out there, you joined them in 2017, which was a little bit of a homecoming for you coming back to uh, to New York. Beyond that, as you were looking at firms, I suspect that you could have had many opportunities of firms that were looking for somebody like yourself that had the the background, the track record. When you looked at USV, what did they have in particular? And what were some of the non-negotiables that you needed to be in place to join any type of firm? Yeah, well, so for full context, I, w- I had spent about five and a half years at Mavron at that point and had a fantastic experience. So I was not, you know, looking or, or trying to kind of do a survey at that point. Mavron was a, you know, is a fantastic firm and had given me a tremendous amount of opportunity and I think values that learning curve that we're talking about and values great people. Um, USV I met and, you know, what interested me about USV was a couple of things. The core thesis of USV has been articulated in different ways over time and evolves. But really, the core thesis of USV is curiosity, right? And the idea that perspective is interesting and the thinking part of investing, of coming up with hypotheses and shared ideas and looking at things as applications of those shared ideas is both a valuable way to invest and frankly, one that we all enjoy. And there's a joy to how things are done at USV around some things we decide to do because we think it creates superior results. Other things we decide to do, and hopefully some of these are the same things, because that's the way people here like to do them, right? That's what people find fun and fulfilling about this role. And that was really clear to me, you know, right away about the partnership here that they absolutely loved not only investing, but the process of developing those perspectives. And that I thought I could learn a lot from that and also would be something that if I think about doing this career for many decades, which I do, would be continually fulfilling to me. And in many ways, it does uh, align with your propensity and, and your background of intellectual curiosity and learn, going on these learning journeys with, with founders 
and looking at industries as they continue to transform. And USV has always been like that. There's always, and Fred in particular has been blogging forever. And I find that although he's teaching a lot of people, he's also learning in public. Oh, constantly. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, as you then think about the organization itself, I always feel like USV has been thesis driven. But that thesis has consistently evolved and dynamically changed over time. And if you could take us inside the curtain a little bit of how does this actually happen when you have you, you wrote a great post in 2018 about the next generation of what the thesis for USV is. Take us inside of how those conversations happen within the partnership when you're constructing a thesis. Yeah, kind of as you would expect, by the time we publish a thesis, it's as much a statement of where we think we already are or have been for a little while as where we're going, right? By the, what what happens, whether with the kind of major horizontal thesis or the sub-theses that exist underneath it in any given kind of category that we're interested in, it's a result of, I think, a lot of conversation and learning together. One of the things that we do, which I think is most important for this, is designated time as a partnership around ideas, not investments. So structuring time as a team where we talk about categories or ideas um, and people can throw up a hypothesis, right? You know, if you think I, I, the example I like to give with this these days is our climate fund. You know, we, we have the structured time. It happens every couple of weeks. It's two hour blocks. And it's not about talking about, you know, the deals on the table or our portfolio. We have a lot of other time that we spend talking about that as well. And it's important, but this you know, very purposely is not that. And the way we run those sessions is someone grabs the time. We say, oh, we have this coming up. And someone says, hey, I'm going to use this time to talk about, you know, my, my, what I've been thinking about with direct-to-learner education right now and how I think we should push our thesis in that direction or DAOs or for many, many times over the last, you know, two years, climate. And, and Albert basically kept grabbing the time and saying, hey, I like threw a couple more thoughts together. What do you guys think of this? Or, you know, hey, I've kind of pushed this thesis around. How did these ideas I care about translate into something that's investable, right? Um, what themes might intersect? And, and one thing we really wrestled over is, is it aligned with our current thesis or does it need to be a different thesis? And what formation it should take around investing. But it really started with ideas. The first idea was, this is the most important issue of our time. I, I want to devote my energy to it. The second was, okay, what are the applications of that? Like, if you want to devote your energy, where should that go, right? What What is the opportunity in it? How is this time different than it was before? Like, what is the intersection of investable asset and interesting idea, right? And just kept grabbing the time we kept talking about it. And I don't know, 18 months later, that becomes our climate fund. Before that, it's a lot of conversation. And I think that happens both individually on our own learning and then coming together in that structured way. And I really like that pattern around here. I think ultimately, someone raises their hand and says, okay, I'm going to turn this into a blog post or hey, I'm going to try to formalize some of these thoughts we've been throwing around. Um, and then, you know, months pass or sometimes years pass and we're actually kind of starting to work on this now. And someone says, I think that needs some updating, right? If we really think about what we've been interested in or most talk, you know, talking about the most, it's a little different than that thing we wrote a couple years ago, or it's, it's evolved. It's never a jump. It's always an evolution, right? And so I'm going to try to kind of rework it a little bit and then throw it around to everyone else. So 
it's both structured and fluid, if that makes sense. Um, and I've, I don't know, it's, it's, it's jarring when you're first put in it. And then I think it becomes, you know, easy to drink Kool-Aid. Thanks for sharing that. And it's definitely a great way to structure about coming to a thesis. And I'm glad you pointed out that not only do you have the structure, but it's quite fluid given whatever might happen in the environment. One thing that I'd love to just pull on a little bit more is when you do have this thesis that's built, how do you think about the team itself and whether that thesis that you've landed on is something that your team is uniquely positioned to execute on and that you can do it better or at least comparable to other firms that are going after that thesis? The first thing is it has to be a thesis. And for example, DeFi is interesting is not a thesis, right? It's a, it is, I guess, but it's not really an investable one. It's more a category. Investing in consumer healthcare isn't thesis-driven investing. It's, it's dividing the market by category. Totally fine, but that's a little bit of a different kind of thing, right? I think the, the biggest thing about a thesis is you have to be able to find things that fit outside of it, right? That, that has to it has to narrow the world in some way, and it has to offer perspective so that if it suggests something is the right fit, by definition, it also has to suggest something is the wrong fit. Otherwise, it's it's an interesting statement. It's a perspective, but it doesn't really help you um, narrow your lens and focus your investing. And so probably the the, the biggest internal tension we feel in developing the theses or or debates is around too narrow, too broad. What is the balance of broad enough that that provides us ability to go down interesting, you know, angles and and pull the threads, but also united perspective that helps us narrow the market. And I think in particularly noisy markets and, and high velocity markets, I find the tighter the thesis, the better. Because it allows us to start from a common ground of understanding with each other on what we're looking for, and also to enter conversations with teams from a place of, hey, you have a hypothesis, we have a hypothesis, let's see if there's alignment between these versus, you know, pitch me your company and I'll make some, you know, evaluation in a very short period of time if I think it's quote unquote good, you know, which that has been an, an evolution in my thinking and, and approach that I've really enjoyed. So when these theses are developed, and of course, you know, there's that balance between being too broad and too narrow, but really having a nuanced point of view that instructs how you look at investing in certain things and companies versus everything being ad hoc. But I'm curious in terms of what are the main benefits that you've seen that have resulted from having these narrow theses and whether that's sourcing, picking, winning, where do you see the the biggest points of differentiation for the firm? When we do it at our best, and I would say um, we have a horizontal thesis, and then we have these narrowed theses or perspectives on several verticals. And some of them are much sharper than others. And we're constantly trying to sharpen the ones that just like don't feel quite sharp enough. So for example, I think we have a pretty tight lens and thesis on Um, education. We believe that the education system is broken and that it is going to be reformed through direct-to-learner education that creates great product to drive up value and down costs direct to learners outside of systems. 
we know when things fit into that. We still have to analyze the business. We have to get to know the teams. But when we, anyone around the table sees something in that, we're like, this looks like something for USV. Let's dig in. I could say, you know, I think Web3, we're, we're pretty tight on. We're actually working on getting a little bit tighter right now. But I think we've been, you know, pretty tight there. Um, fintech, I think we're pretty tight on. There have been other categories where, like, we just haven't been quite tight enough, right? Like, directionally, we're like, this is interesting. We know it fits this broader thesis of how do you drive up value and down cost and kind of um, enable accessibility. But we don't know enough of what we're looking at. And that's where we really try to kind of hone and hone and hone. Because why does it help us? I think it helps us with sourcing, for sure, right? Because we can get ideas out there. What we know is when we say to the world in every possible channel we can, hey, we're looking for this, often we will find it. There's a lot of awesome innovation out there. Um, the chance that we've thought of something that other people haven't is very, very low. We just need to you know, connect with the right teams that are working on it. And the tighter we can be in getting it out there, the more likely we are to do so. I do think it helps us on winning in two ways. One, um, as we all know, the market's very fast right now. And it speeds up our internal processes a lot. Right? It's much easier for us to get alignment as a team when we say, hey, this is a hypothesis we've been talking about for a long time this company is doing it, we don't have to get conviction on the opportunity. We have to get conviction on our alignment with this approach to the opportunity. And that's a much different thing. And so I think it helps us go faster. And then we act with more confidence, which is good in investments overall. And I think often, particularly for the, the right entrepreneur for us, they, they appreciate that we're coming at it with perspective, right? That we've thought about this in a different way. Those are great points. And I think in today's market, especially where capital is such a commodity, more than ever, I mean, it's a commodity with so many different players. And in fact, the folks that were formerly public investors now going earlier and early into the private markets, I think some source of differentiation is absolutely required to not only source, but also win the companies that you want to get into. And of course, that's augmented by the brand that USV has created over many, many years. The one thing that I am curious about is when we talk about how dynamically your thought thesis has changed and the constant conversations of making sure that you're refining your points of view on, on different aspects. You mentioned education, for example, is that the rounds have gotten much bigger over you know the last couple of years. And it feels like 2018 was effectively a decade ago versus only three years ago. One thing that uh, I think a lot of people find interesting is, unlike some of your peers, the firm hasn't really increased fund size that much. So I'd be curious within the firm itself, how do you think about fund sizing, especially within a market where the Series A, Series B rounds have just gotten bigger and bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think we think about it in a couple of different ways. Uh, there's We've increased it incrementally, I would say. So at a way, way slower velocity or a smaller proportion than many of our peer funds. We think looking at how USV has operated historically, that overall the fund construction of the firm works. The number of investments we put in a fund, the kind of ratio of them and the stage we're investing at is the right thing for us. And so when we think about how we want to evolve, we want to continually push our thesis we want to evolve the categories we're interested in. We want to evolve the form factor in as it relates to Web3 and crypto and, and what we need to do there or be able to stand up something like climate. But we're not trying to become something different. We like to be early stage. 
um, investors doing what we, we want to do. And we actually think, despite a lot of change in the market, it's still the right setup for that. I think when you push funds beyond a certain size to deploy the capital in the way this market's requiring, you have to write bigger checks and you have to become at least somewhat more growth investors. And we want to be opportunistic growth investors in our opportunity fund, but we like early stage companies and we want to do that. So at the heart of it, it's like not all that more complicated than that. And then we look at the modeling of it and say, okay, at the end of the day, despite this is kind of my like overall market take. I feel very anxious all the time about how crazy things are and are we winning and are we losing and everything going on and all these other funds. And then every once in a while you step back and say, okay, well, like, how's it going? And you say, overall, I'm kind of doing the things I want to do. And I've lost more than I'd like to lose or things have gotten away. But overall, when I look at the year, I've done about the number of investments I wanted to do. I'm excited about the things USV are in. I think this is pretty good. And net-net, this market is probably working more for us than against us, being early stage investors, right? And so do we fundamentally want to shift our strategy because of all this noise in the market? Probably not. And so we just kind of keep on keeping on with the thing we like to do best. Do you think that is a byproduct of you're able to continue to win at the pace given you have this very clear way of working with entrepreneurs, you know, you understand their businesses, they're self-selecting in because you you do have so much in the public ether about the type of companies and your points of view. You know, if you look at some of the other funds out there, they have actually not been incremental in size. They've looked at it and said, well, okay, if I'm going to own 10 to 15% ownership in a company, now around is 25 million or 20 million versus what might have been five to 10 million. And therefore, I need to raise a bigger fund to be able to do that. How do you view that perspective? Is there any variance or is there any line of demarcation whereby that actually does make sense? Oh, of course it makes sense. It just may not make sense for us. So we look at this in three ways, right? Like uh, that definitely makes sense right? The market has gotten more expensive and the rounds have gotten bigger. So if you wanted to say, we're going to completely keep our strategy with the stuff we've been doing and adjust to the market, you would have to adjust to the percent that the market has changed, which isn't incremental. It's actually pretty exponential, right? And so there's an, there's an argument that that makes sense. But we say a couple of other things. One is um, our average check has gone up and our ownership has definitely gone down, but exits have gone up too that may wash out with exit value. If that compresses, you're in a very different place, right? And that's always possible. But right now that looks to be the case. We also, you know, press a lot on what are categories where this isn't happening yet? You know, we want to keep investing in the thing. USV invested in education before it was really popular and mainstream. Now it's really popular and mainstream. That doesn't mean we don't want to keep investing in it. But the fact that we invested in it before means Cost blended average, the average price is lower, right? Because we were investing in it when it was still a little bit cheaper. And we think our ability to win in more competitive markets is higher because we have a track record in the categories by the time they get popular. We won't be able to do that in everything. But when we can, I think that's effective. Crypto is similar in that way, right? There are others. And so can we keep pressing ahead of where do we think there's opportunity that now looks a little dicier but might become those kind of things that we think are aligned with our thesis. Climate's kind of like that as well. 
that's a part of it. Can we suck it up on the things that we want to do that are the most competitive categories and just own a little bit less and believe that the exits are going to, you know, qualify them? And can we continue to iterate on form factor? Our, our Web3 investing adds a dynamic to the fund that's that's different and and blended can all of this kind of work together and make sense. The market's so dynamic that may change over time, but right now I think that combination is actually pretty interesting. The one thing I would say is this all hinges on a belief that you raise a fund at a size where you don't have to do everything. Right? There are people who believe that there are a very finite number of companies that are going to matter in any given decade. And basically the entire role of venture is to get into those companies. That is not what we believe. We actually believe there's a lot of interesting innovation going on. And there's a lot of interesting companies being created. And especially at a $250 million fund, we don't have to take a top-down approach. We don't have to be in all of them. We just have to be right enough on enough of the things that we are in for the fund dynamics to work. And if we are, the numbers are fine. And that is partially due to the fund size that we hold on to. Yeah, I think the other thing that um, just to unpack is going to the thesis discussion for a second is by having a point of view that is very specific around, you know, things like Web3, you're able to see things that might be non-obvious to others and be able to invest in areas at valuations, at ownership, that allow you to get into those companies where you are peering around the corner versus traditional SaaS company that's fintech that everybody's going to put a term sheet out if it's the obvious founder, obvious market, obvious TAM, obvious traction. You can have multiple reactions to this market. One that people have, which is totally reasonable, is faster market, run faster, chase more. I think we've really pushed, and frankly, my partners have pushed me because I think that's a very normal reaction to have when you're in kind of my cohort where, you know, even though I've been in venture now 10 years, like the market's only gotten crazier and crazier. I I haven't seen that many cycles. And so the market's faster. Okay, I'll run faster too, you know, and my partners, and this is really the benefit of a great partnership with diversity of thinking and experience and all kinds of things to that, you know, what they've pushed me on is, Actually, what if that's not the answer? Chase less, think more, right? Like in the face of this market, slow down, think more. The more we can think about what are those corners we should peer around, uh, what can we see that others may not be able to, and kind of resist the odd to just, you know, resist the urge to just kind of treadmill this, the better we're going to be. And I'm happy that I have that kind of push in the, you know, in the mix right now. That makes a ton of sense to me, and, and certainly the market over the last 24 months has been frenetic, fueled by a ton of liquidity coming in during 2000 and 2021, creating these micro-asset bubbles where valuations have departed and divorced themselves from any fundamentals. Now, I know that's changed more recently, where we've seen, at least in the mid-cap stock market, mid- mid-cap tech rather, the valuations have gone down anywhere from 40 to 60%. And while it's too early to tell of what this actually means from an economic standpoint, I am curious about the aspect of risk and thinking about how do you insulate risk as much as you think about underwriting to overall upside. Is that something that you think about? And would you agree that there are things that managers should be doing to insulate themselves 
from taking excess risk in any market. I very much agree with that. And I think um, USV is very comfortable with risk as you have to be as early stage investors, particularly very comfortable um, looking in the face of, of very new categories, often ones that have kind of systemic risk to them. But from a fund management and a firm management perspective, I think we actually trend more conservative and we believe in managing um, excessive risk and optimizing, frankly, to, to getting money back on each investment pretty quickly. And that often means taking money off the table in investments through kind of opportunistic ways, you know, secondaries, et cetera, which not everyone does in the industry. And, you know, oftentimes people ask like, well, have you done the math around does that, you know, where does that leave you? And the answer is no. And that leaves us with, you know, a management that we all feel kind of comfortable with and happy with. And also, um, you know, LPs have seemed to like because it, it values kind of near term liquidity. I don't know. Fred always says, you know, when asked how I got so rich, I said by selling early. And I think, um, you know, we don't want to sell too early, but I, I think in this market, there's kind of something to that. It, it does speak to the uh, the managing of risk and return and ensuring that, again, you're you're optimizing for, for the, the upside, but at the same time, you're finding ways to mitigate the risk from an, from an LP perspective, at least, to be able to, in, in this case, take money off the table in many cases, the private rounds today are, are actually much bigger than what we saw public offerings in the past. So it totally makes sense. Given how dynamic the market is, a lot of this discussion is has been around how USV has created certain frameworks, which I don't think have strayed too much from the core knitting of the beginning, right? Thesis construction, selling in secondaries, fund sizes that have been fairly similar in size. If you look back then in the net last two years, has anything material changed within USV as it relates to a byproduct of what's going on in the market? It really depends on what you would call material. <laughs> um, feels material to us, like probably in the scheme of things, perhaps not. I'd say a couple of things have changed. One is, I think, you know, the climate fund um, feels very significant to us. It's the first time we've stood up a vertical fund and um, it's the same team executing on it and the same kind of strategy in terms of stage, but saying that this is a category we care enough about and is different enough from what goes in our core fund to stand up a separate vehicle was a big deal to us and has been an exciting kind of chapter for USV. Um, I also, one thing I just love about it is a partner, you know, we all have now very much kind of gotten up to speed and learned and embraced this and, and are all investing it. But it really started with Albert saying, hey, you know, there's a lot of reasons to believe this is a good idea. But the first one is it's something I really care about. And I actually love that about USV, right? That like a really good reason for us to go down any avenue is that we're a partnership and someone says, hey, this is something I really care about. Everyone's kind of earned the respect when if they say that, we'll all follow. And so that was a really cool thing to see and has been a lot of fun and I think will actually turn into a really fantastic fund. So that's one thing. The second is our our pace is um, <laughs> not fast in any kind of market perspective, but for us has increased. This fund cycle will be shorter than I think any other fund cycle in USB history. And we've been thinking a lot about that. You know, it's not as short as many of our peers, but it's that that's a big deal to us. And on one hand, 
we think that's fine. And on the other, we like everyone have questions around even for great funds, if there's no time diversity in the deployment of them, how that relates to returns down the line and and what that looks like. So that's something we've been thinking a lot about. So, you know, I think we're, I I just, I don't want to come across that we're isolating ourselves from market dynamics because we're not at all. These things have all impacted us. We're just trying to have them impact us in line with the thesis that we like to kind of invest by. Right. So there's a certain degree of pliability within the the core frameworks that you've built, acknowledging some of the things that are happening. And I I do think, you know, raising a a climate vertically focused fund is actually a pretty big deal, particularly, you know, when it goes into something that you're very passionate about. And I'm, I'm sure that there was a very highly constructed thesis around what type of companies you think are making big changes within climate. One thing that I am curious about also is as you look at USV over the years, everyone knows, you know, the type of companies that have been invested in the returns. And I get a lot of people asking me questions, at least from the LP side, what makes a certain firm so good? And I think there's many ways to answer that. But if you were to force rank the two or three things that you think have most contributed to the durability of success of USV, how would you force rank those things? The quality and thoughtfulness and smarts of the people involved is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. I think we have a good strategy. I think we have a good construct. I think we've like put mechanics in place that work. But at the end of the day, firms and partnerships are just collections of people. Capital, you can shift and USV, um, they're fantastic investors. <laughs> you know, that's been the gift that I've gotten. They, and I think that's because they are thinkers before capital deployers. Um, they like the process of coming up with ideas. They like, and, and we like the process of doing it together and leveraging collective thinking and brainstorming in, in aggregation with individual belief. And there's been a process developed over a lot of time, you know, working together of how to do that well. Um, You know, sometimes, sometimes we'll say that, like, you know, you don't see the method to the madness while you're in it, that sometimes things can feel very chaotic at USB because we're very, very low on structure. Um, We don't vote. We don't really have any kind of procedural parts of our meetings. We don't have, someone's like, how do you decide on a deal? We're always like, we don't have a good answer to that question. But somehow through conversation that sometimes feels endless, you know, I think we get to enough of the right answers for this to work. And that's because I think the quality of thought around the table is very, very high. And so what I've been doing is just like, how do I keep my learning curve really steep to continually learn from that quality of thought as much as I can? I want to pull that thread a little bit because I think it's 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 fascinating. And if you think about the notion of really the advantage being um, the human IP, right? The people around the table really having a culture that promotes certain things like learning um, both in public and within the partnership itself. The challenge that a lot of firms have had over time is when certain people fall off and, you know, as firms can last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and hopefully 
you've built a firm that survives past your own career. And as you continue to build a, a firm, you're bringing on new people, there's generational succession. How do you think about that within the walls of, of USV to ensure there is durability that, are, that lasts well past the initial founding group? We're thinking about this a lot. I think I'm, you know, lucky that my partners who at this point have been doing it a, a while are inspired to keep on going and um, feel like there's a lot of interesting things left to be done. But um, I'm very cognizant that we need to make sure that we don't, you know, get complacent because it's working right now and that we keep an eye towards how to continually evolve the, the firm. And, and they are too. There's no other way to do it besides figure out how you add people and add them in that way in some kind of regular format. I joined and then um, Nick Grossman, who had kind of been around USV for a long time in different ways, um, joined the partnership as well. I don't call him new because he has been around in a really integral part of USV for a long time and a really special thinker. But, you know, he and I are probably the newest parts of it. You know, will we add partners over the next several years, we'll have to. And we're excited to because one, you need to do it for generational transition and to make sure the firm you know, lives on. And two, if you have an institution based on thinking and ideas, you want new ideas and you want to keep new perspectives coming in. I think that's important as well. And so for both of those reasons, we will. I look at talent and venture as a really fluid thing, right? And so I think rather than look for people the moment that you decide you need them. It needs to be a continual conversation where you're always thinking as a partnership about, you know, what the right addition might look like and where that might come from so that you can intersect you needing it with the right timing on the, you know, partner side that you're bringing in. And I don't think you can always architect it that they're ready at exactly the right moment that you're ready or vice versa. So we talk about it on a weekly basis. Most firms would agree that you do want to infuse new blood over time, both for the survivability of the firm, but also to engender new new ways of thinking and diversity of thought. I was having this conversation with somebody that's been in the industry for 25 years and been through four firms. And what they were saying is one of the challenges they faced is when they were joining big firms that had established partnerships, the most difficult thing was for those founding GPs to truly promote a culture where everybody's truly had a voice. And in many cases, what happens is somebody comes in and you have somebody that's, you know, they've been there 20 years and it becomes a deferential culture. And decisions, while optically are made as a group, they're really made with the, uh, the input of a single person or maybe group of, of people. How do you ensure that that is not the culture? And what, does, what has USV done? Since you are, you know, you are one of the newer partners, what have you seen work? One of the most amazing things about USV is the fact that that doesn't happen. Um, and the credit kind of, it's again, like, I don't know if that's structural or just the people you're working with. Fred and Brad and Albert and Andy and John are very high output, low ego people. None of them have the desire to run a firm. They, none of them want to be head of this ship. You know, they all very much want to have a partnership. And I think that helps. I mean, th I think sometimes that happens when you have someone who really wants to run something. These people don't. 
Um, and in fact, that's why they resisted added pe- adding people for a while. You know, I think part of the reason we don't have process, we don't have a lot of, you know, more junior investors, things like that is because it's a, it's not a place where someone's looking to run an organization, really. Um, we're kind of running an organization by accident in a lot of ways. We're looking to have a partnership where we invest. And so I think that ethos has really helped it. I also think there's genuine respect for everyone around the table. Obviously, like Fred, you know, is a huge brand and a phenomenal investor and has long been kind of a face of the firm. But he's not the only phenomenal investor, including in, you know, realized returns around the table. And that helps. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's sometimes what people don't realize about USV. Like, you look around and John and Albert and Andy and Brad, like, they have results that speak for themselves, too. Um, And so there's a ton of mutual respect that I think can only be earned that way. And so, you know, I, I love it. That sets the bar really high for me. And I walked in and kind of, they only know how to treat partnerships with respect. And so they gave it to me, honestly, you know, before I really earned it or deserved it. And I think that helps you earn it and deserve it faster. And and I think that's a culture that kind of keeps on giving when you can set it up that way. But I think it comes from people who have earned that respect through their results, giving it to others with very low ego. We've seen this within venture actually evolved toward more of a team sport model versus individual contributors looking to invest out of the same pool of capital. And in the past, things like tracking attribution partner to partner were a real thing. And I think more and more people are seeing that's not the way to promote the right type of culture and create the best returns for your, for your LPs. Look, I mean, I think all of that makes sense. And I think you guys have done a phenomenal job in not only building a brand, but building a very clear voice of what you stand for, how you will invest. And it's exciting to see the firm grow to the degree it has. I want to end with a question, and that is more on the uh, the personal side. And you've been able to work with some amazing people with USV and Mavron, and you talked about your, your uh, interactions with Bill Campbell. But I'd love to hear what has been the most transformational piece of career advice that you've ever received. I think of two. The first is is a really obvious one, but I think the advice that I've always been given that I think is more important is if you prioritize the people, the rest will figure itself out. There's a lot of variables in any decision, in any career decision in your life. And I think there's a lot of temptation, particularly when, like among millennials, which I am one and early in your career to be like, I want to do this so that it, you know, gets me on the right platform to do that and kind of setting up this whole ladder in front of me. And I've always gotten the advice to resist that urge and to prioritize working with the smartest, most ambition, most ambitious kind of people you can find. And if you do that, it will lead to good experiences and good opportunities. And that's been wildly true in my career. I think the other thing, very venture specific, I was told at the beginning is in every meeting, think about what you're giving more than you're taking. So whether or not you're interested in the investment, whether or not two seconds in, you realize that, you know, it's not going to work for you. If you think, how can the person I'm talking to leave having had a good experience in this conversation and taken away something from it that they can use, even if it's not capital, even if it's not an investment, that over time, you will build a network and a platform that 
is more beneficial to yourself. It's a selfish intent, even when it doesn't, you know, seem so at the beginning and it will feel better doing so. And I got that advice early and it was important early because I I had very little to give in the conversation. So it really made me think about what that could be. Um, And I've always remembered it since. And I think it's important, busy markets, but I, I think that goes a long way in this industry. The main theme around both of those things is really thinking about the long term and doing right by people. And I, you know, I've always looked at some of the best career advice I've I've been. It's it's always over index on people, over index on ensuring that you're creating the right type of relationships in the market, and do it even if it comes at the expense of short term. Both of those things you said speak exactly to that. Well, this has been so much fun, Rebecca. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and look forward to hopefully doing this in person sometime soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rebecca. To learn more about her or Score Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.